0: Welcome to the Sheila Kama Extractive Podcast. Today, we continue our discussion of the subject of value addition in mineral oil and gas commodities. My guest is a Kenyan national, Julius Katune. Julius is a policy analyst and a partner in a firm of advisors called VCS Advisors, who focus on policy reforms based in Nairobi. Julius is also a senior project consultant with the Master School of Management. Julius, welcome to the Sheila Kama Extracted Podcast. Thank
1: you so much, Sheila, Uh, glad to be here.
0: So let's start with the basics. Different people have a different take on what value addition is. So let me start by asking you, what is value addition to Julius Gatune?
1: For me, value addition basically literally means the same idea that if you do something that increases value in terms of, uh, of price, in terms of services you can get, in terms of, uh, of other things that something can help you do, then you, you have value. So it can be money, it can be the potential to add other things, other ancillary services. To me, I would see that as value. But in the end, uh, any product has something is has a market price. And that price is, that is the total value of it. So how that value builds up and where who gets what share, it's also something that matters to me also.
0: So uh, in the context of uh, say minerals and uh, oil and gas, uh, yes. how, how do you see the nature of incremental value that is added? Is it,
1: first of all, and I think this is always very interesting for people when they think of, of mineral and they think of a metal, Mineral is basically a a rock that has metal inside. And what you have in the market is a a product uh, that uses that uh, whatever metal that was inside there. And and for you to have a product that is in the household or is in the industry or somewhere, very many things happen. Uh, Much of that is knowledge actually, but very many processes happen. Uh, And also there's an element of, uh, of, of, of also branding depending on what kind of products that is. So all these things become important. But sometimes we tend to think uh, when we, we get something from the ground, we have something of, of value. Basically, we have something with potential value. And it's, it's when we have something on, uh, being used somewhere in the final consumer, wherever it goes, that's when you really, we should really try to understand how does it get there and what needs to be done. And as I said, uh, a lot of that, there's quite a big component of knowledge that people don't understand that when you have a piece of metal, it is that all plus a lot of knowledge on top of it that becomes a product.
0: Yeah, this is quite interesting because uh, it, it it leads me to ask you then that typically when uh, governments, certainly in the developing world, have a conversation about valuating they have that conversation with mining companies that extract the rock, not the scientists who determine how metallurgically you extract it and how you then use 10 that uh, mineral substance into a metal and what the applications of that metal are downstream. Is this a flaw then? Should, Should governments rather be having a conversation with companies that produce metals for manufacturers rather than having a conversation with mining companies that merely liberate the chemical substance from a rock.
1: I think that is that, that should be the thing because it's when you understand what is this metal and what it's used, then you can go backward and understand how do you get it from wherever it was from the ground, from the underground. And I think they don't have enough of this conversation, uh, and then they have a, a wrong understanding. They can look at the price of uh, aluminium or something in the market, and it says this price is whatever thousand dollars per per ton. And then they start thinking, wow, what are we getting here? Without ever even talking to people who are in aluminum, people who are producing metal or people who are producing whatever product they are, because then they they don't have this clear understanding that what this mining company is giving them is not aluminum, it's it's whatever is aluminum oxide or whatever it is. That is different from the the product they are seeing on being traded. And, and, and trying to negotiate now with a mining company about uh, how do we share this value. And I think even information, more importantly, if you ever have that conversation with the with the metal companies, just to 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 educate themselves, they also need to have a, I don't know a conversation with what do you call geologists and other people to start understanding. Because I think uh, there's not enough invested in terms of themselves understanding what is out there. Uh, what is the potential, what what all these things of, uh, if you say you have some results or you have potential, there, there are all kinds of terminologies. Uh, so for so them to understand what is it that you have, is it a potential you have, is it a real thing, and then how does it go from those potential to whatever a mineral, to a mineral development, to other things, and, and the risks involved. And to yeah. me, I think uh, that is, they, there is clear not investment in gathering enough information and enough understanding, so that you can now start having what you'd call reasonable conversations, rather than conversations that are based more on posturing. Sometimes you might see people want to posture and uh, and, and get very little information. I, I went to the stock market, or whatever commodities market, things are trading that, and come with that small piece of information, without really understanding. You need to really build a lot of information because you can you can even have a proper conversation.
0: Yeah, yeah. So, so this is interesting because I spoke to, uh, I interviewed another policy advisor and he argued that value addition was important because otherwise governments don't capture the full uh, value. And he used an example that uh, he worked for a company where they were merely exporting concentrate and that he estimated that the country was only capturing about 46% of the value. And that by the time it was sold as a metal onwards to uh, uh, manufacturers fabricating products, the value had increased by about 60. And, and, And so what you're saying is that yes, but the metal in itself has no value unless you then add to it intellectual property until you yeah. brand it, until you turn mm-hmm. it into a product, and that these seemingly intangible things are an integral part of value. Is that what you're saying? That's
1: you know what I'm saying? People, people don't understand. There's a huge, huge part uh, uh, of that value we say when we're saying oh, this is the value you get from this metal. They discount the value of knowledge. Knowledge is really what matters. Because a metal I know it's basically a rock. It can be anything, it was, has always been there. It was there in the ground before even the country. Thousands of years ago, it was somewhere underground there. It is knowledge that made people understand there is something inside here. It is knowledge that further helps us to understand you can get it and do something with it. And, and I think the whole idea of knowledge is not given enough because a huge amount of that value they are seeing, the, it's, it's, it's knowledge. If, if you just capture and separate the value, there is this intangible, what you call the intellectual property, and also other scientific knowledge that might not be intellectual property and so on. But that is, I think, where we fail. And also the other thing as people say they lose value, uh, country, where once we, we, are, we are exporting all and we are losing all this much, you always have to ask yourself, really, as a, because you have limited, uh, or you say resources as a country, you may want to ask yourself, is your best uh, resource, best use of your resources is it to, to, to make that metal, or is it just to export ore and do something else with that uh, skills and knowledge? You have to ask yourself. Because even if you look at countries like uh, Australia, you would say it's a, a very well-developed country. It's a developed country for sure. But they do ship a lot of ore to, to China and other places. It's not that Australia may not be able. If they wanted to, to make steel or something, they would do it. But I'm sure they have done their calculation and said, okay, maybe I may do something else. They do still make skill. they do process some certain metals, I, I I say. But I think sometimes you also have to, to make the proper calculation understanding. Just because you are taking all and taking it out there and, and, and making it, the economics might say, maybe that's the best way to, that might be the best economics given, given what you want to do and what you want to develop. So, so it's a question of, yeah, of, of, of seeing what, it, what makes sense, as yeah. opposed to this idea of nationalism that we tend to, we have to do this and this and this, and we have a piece of metal, which we can show we develop. I mean, there's value in it, obviously, because also as you develop it, you also develop other skills. But I say, we always have to ask ourselves, what is the longer game that we want to do for our country?
0: Yes, so, so really what you're saying is that in the absence of knowledge, and R&D, and in the absence of entrepreneurship, somebody seeing latent value and and, and turning it into real value. You know, it's it's just a a mere discussion, but ultimately somebody has to do the work to translate that potential into a reality. So how can the narrative be changed then uh, so that it is more aligned to reality? Uh, Because it seems to me that in terms of mineral value chain, for instance, that there's a correlation between potential successful value addition and a country's capacity to attract investment midstream and downstream. And that capacity to attract investment seems to me to be where the knowledge space, where the entrepreneurship space, and where the demand for market becomes so important. So how can we change the narrative and and, and focus not so much on the fact that we have the minerals, but that we have the knowledge and the capacity to turn it into something that has real value to a person who's willing to ultimately pay a price for it.
1: Yes, that is, is, a, is a, it's a tricky question because a lot of it, obviously, there's a particular attachment uh, to, to minerals and, and there has been a story of explosions that has gone on for a long time, which is, part of it is it's true because obviously if you think of African countries, there has been a kind of exploitation based on on minerals uh, from colonial and whatever so so already there is a narrative that is, is very strong and people become very very nationalistic when they, they 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 hear this topic comes up so so the narrative you're almost like fighting uh, an uphill battle uh, but we also have to help people to to understand what is the proper process because i think even you can still do value addition, but the question is, how do you go about it? Because I think what I've been done, and I think when I was looking at uh, the, the value addition uh, policy in Ghana and so on, what what people tend to do is have this reaction that we need to do more. We need to to have more value addition done in. And and, and you can satisfy people easily by just saying, okay, you are going to have local suppliers. So the mining company will go there and maybe it's, it's the ball bearing balls for, for crushing metal. For example, I was talking, I think I'm uh, mentioning Ghana where they were doing gold. You you can now log, appoint a local manufacturer, a local supplier to go and get you and import those or import some spare parts of machinery. But actually you are killing value because what you're doing, you're creating somebody, a new enterprise here that is going to, just basically be an intermediary. Basically import what the mining company was even more efficient in importing and putting them there. And also again, you're just transferring value to one person because I I think you're not uh, even helping. The fact that you have a local business person who now becomes a a middleman. uh, You can claim that you have done a local value addition, but really what you have done is is created some some rich, uh, another, another rich individual not because he has done anything, but because he just happens to be a middleman. And the worst of all, it also creates uh, political economy issues because then if we can make people rich by just offering them contract, then the politicians can come and say, bring my crony here, or somebody who is an agent of of people who have power. So you you start getting all this, uh, what you might, might call corruption coming in, in the process of trying to bring value addition. So you're just creating another elite class or people who are really not doing anything and they're not helping. So the question becomes: How do you create? How do you even focus on on a different value addition? Because I guess I'll also give a another example that I saw, like in Ghana, where the company actually decided: Okay, another way is just sewing the, the the uniforms of the of the mine workers, the overall. You can give local women. You can train them and so on, and that can be. That probably can have more impact because you're getting money into entrepreneurs to other people rather than middlemen. So the question, as you have said, is, how do we get entrepreneurs as opposed to middlemen? Because our when you when people start doing value addition, what happens is that the policy gets distorted. And what you do is you create new middlemen who are really they are local people, but there's nothing uh, uh, helpful in terms of from a country perspective. Maybe they, they may become rich and invest in something else, but that's not the objective. It's a question, how do you create actual value? And then you have to start small because these are complex operations. These are a bit more complex things. And how do you also start bringing people that maybe you can do joint ventures. Maybe you can think of how do you get SMEs that can do small joint ventures and with time, you can start bringing the skills needed.
0: I mean, I think in many ways, your original answer, which is knowledge is critical. Because with knowledge, you have a basis for a groundswell of much more than just being an, an agent of a foreign entity. And I think knowledge has more spinoffs than a mere license to produce the same thing in country X, where in effect, the knowledge and IP sits elsewhere. And and, and yes. so you you become beholden in perpetuity to those with knowledge. Mm. So, so m- my sense is that, the the area of knowledge, really, in terms of R&D, in terms of fabrication, in terms of growing markets. The one thing you didn't say, which I really believe, well, I know is a huge part of what we call value downstream in the consumer space is, is breeding very successful, prestigious brands. A huge amount of what uh, you and I buy in the stores today, the value of it is just the brand. The reason why one piece of shoe costs more 10 times the other, it's, it's just the brand. And there's a huge amount of investment that goes into marketing and positioning brands. And once well positioned, they become a huge part of the value and they become a huge pool for uh, customers who then buy. And, and I think that If we want to add value, we have to start thinking about breeding brands that can go into the international stage that can then propel our products, whether it is cocoa coming out of Ivory Coast or gold coming out of Ghana uh, or or something else. Uh, If these products at consumer level aren't branded prestigiously, they will always attract are lower price than
1: their European counterparts. I truly agree with you. And I, the cocoa example is, is quite, quite, quite good because I think the studies we have done in Ghana and other places, you'll find that the, the, the big manufacturers of the, the big of chocolate, they basically even stop caring about the actual manufacture of chocolate. They just have industrial chocolate because all the focus is on brand and uh, branding. So if you look at craft and so on, the, the chocolate bar is maybe 40, 50% uh, is the brand. The other part is they even stopped manufacturing. Uh, and I agree. And, and this brings us to, to the challenge of uh, if, you, if you're doing even mining itself, how do you then brand and oh, How do you brand? Because it's a product, it's an actual final consumer product that gets branded. And I guess you can also do interesting branding because, uh, uh, for example, as here, I think you saw Intel at one time had a very successful branding strategy where you may never see the chip, but they put it Intel inside and Intel was able to get into the consumer space without people ever knowing what a a computer chip is. So it's still possible to to build interesting stories about your minerals and your what and, and, and get to understand how do you work with the final product. For example, if you are doing a phone, a phone has Colton from Congo and so on, it's possible to say, what, what is in there it's it's it's, it's, it's this content from this particular place produced in a sustainable way and, and, and ensure so and I, I think those those are the, the the work that we really need to to start understanding how to build yeah. a, those proper uh, sustainable value chain and how to then start uh, putting together that branding strategy because I think that is that's how you also build value because then you force people you can bring much value behind. And actually this brings back to the area that I said, uh, I think I have mentioned about fourth industrial revolution. where which is where we are all going, but it, they are still going to use all these kind of metals and other things. But it, it also brings in interesting technologies because now with, uh, with all these blockchain technologies, it's possible to actually map on any product. You can probably have a barcode and can tell you this is where this product went, these were the people who were actually involved, even the person. And this is what the share each person gets. And that also helps people connect, because I think there is new emerging brand of consumers that, are, that do care about sustainability, but they don't understand how it can be done. So I think yeah. this idea of those values, these uh, sustainable systems can be a one way of building branding.
0: Yeah, actually, so, so of course, for most people, we see we interact with brands emotionally in the shopping malls or online, as the case may be. But there are different kinds of brands. That, that is what is typically called a product brand or a retail brand. But there yes. is another type of brand which is called a sauce brand. A sauce mm-hmm. brand speaks to where the material used to make the product came from. So, yes. so let's say, for instance, Belgian chocolate. That's a sauce yes. brand. But there are yes. different kinds of brands. Of, uh, you, you have the Scotch whiskey. But of course they are different, but the the Scots whiskey as a brand saying this whiskey came from Scotland, has over centuries become a source brand. So in effect, to the extent that African countries, Latin American countries, Asian countries want to brand their materials before they reach the consumer, they can cultivate a source brand, Ghana for instance, was called the Gold Coast. That is a powerful source brand that should brand Ghanaian gold and set it apart from other gold. And with that drive, potentially a higher price, all things equal. Mm -hmm. And that is a space in which by simply focusing on creating a certain image of Ghana that appeals to people who want, if you wish, responsible gold or clean gold, they could place themselves in the premier league of gold exporters. So so it doesn't have to be in the consumer space, a source brand. And then Mm -hmm. people who then use it to make retail pieces of jewelry or tabs or whatever other applications, dentists, et cetera, et cetera, they could then brand that this gold was sourced from Ghana. Mm-hmm. And people will say, Oh, I want the Ghanaian variety. So it's yes. it, it, the, the, so, and, and that's where, to your point, our knowledge comes because this is knowledge. It, it comes with yes. understanding this that mm-hmm. you don't have to go and fabricate gold before you can have value, but you can brand your country. You can pursue yes. certain policies that are seen yes. as appealing. And, and it is against that backdrop that you can then essentially are springboard at higher demand and with higher demand, potentially higher price. So you, you are absolutely correct about the knowledge thing. And there's a certain, there's I fear, unwarranted obsession with perception of value as only possible through processing the metals throughout the value chain. But in effect, at any level, you can maximize value. And I'm not sure that... Even at the uh, raw material stages, we have done everything we can to maximize that value before we even think about the next stage. But let's move on to my next question, because of course we, we say that there's limited knowledge, but to be sure on the continent, there are certain very successful value-add ventures. And three come to mind. Morocco is uh, one of the world's largest producers of phosphate has added value to phosphate, going into different products downstream and exporting, including fertilizer, to different parts of the Maghreb region, but also to different parts of Sub-Saharan. South Africa has value-added steel, Uh, Nigeria has uh, value-added petroleum, and Kenya has value-added ornamental horticulture, which is to say flowers, and entered a very, very highly competitive and sensitive market in Holland. So I'm intrigued that we have these successes, two in mining, one in petroleum and one in flowers, mm-hmm. of fundamentally different uh, industries, fundamentally yes. different value chains, fundamentally different yes. risk profiles, fundamentally different types of technology. And there it is. We have succeeded. So I wanted to know from you, what do you think are the characteristics of either the countries and policymakers or the particular interest industries that have made mm. these success stories possible? Is it mm. political leadership? Is it that they dominate the market? It is just the sheer spirit of enterprise. What is, is there a common denominator here?
1: I am wondering whether you whether can say that common denominator or something, but anyway, I think, to me, I think there are some historical reasons uh, that, that and also political economy reasons that make all these cases work in different ways. For example, we must think of Morocco, obviously. I mean, the first bit comes from uh, the Spanish Morocco, that area that has been contested a lot, uh, a lot, because I think the, the country also had wanted to become independent. And even think some countries in Africa don't recognize uh, the Morocco leadership in that. So, so to me, I would imagine just the sheer pressure that that is a very contested area meant that uh, really Morocco has to really focus and see what to do. So I guess uh, I would imagine the, I, I've not read this, but I would imagine that the, the, the political pressure was there and the political goodwill was there. to Let's say, let's make something out of this Let's tie it up. Let's make such value chain that if, if people try to contest it later, we will have a very strong hold on it. And I think for sure, uh, Morocco now, I think that Spanish is not, that, that territory, the people who recognize the, the polisario are very few. I would, that's what I think. And obviously it has gone ahead and also used it as a, as a way to, to also build relations. Because I think Morocco has been using fertilizer to create relationship. I think they are putting up a laser in Ethiopia, laser factory. So it becomes also a tool to, to, for international relations. Uh, if I was to think of South Africa still, I would again say there's a, there's a, there's a historical element of that in the, in the terms of the, the, the government had really tried to see, how do we stand on our own? How do we survive in face of all this? And therefore they tried to build all this uh, very strong industry. And I think from that, they also build skills and other things. And I think there's some benefit that, that has come from that historical vision, I guess, trying to say we can do it. Uh, so to me, I would imagine that might be a role to play. I don't know for how, how much that has played, but the thing is that uh, initially to, to be self-sufficient in steel was always being seen as important in terms of uh, being an independent country. Uh, for Kenya, uh, I would say again, the fact that uh, Kenya has very strong, uh, what you'd say, community that had very strong links. Uh, they're a very strong community of, of European descent. And I think that's those are the people who really built that industry. And they, they, they had good market access and good connection and good networks. So I think they were able to use those networks very well. And I think they were also able to incorporate the Kenya elite uh, in terms of the political elite in that industry. So it became supported in a, in a, in a way because uh, if people who are elite are doing it, then you can get a very good supportive policy on it. Uh, I suppose I guess you could say tea also and coffee are the other things, but those are kind of done by, by, by the smallholder who may, who may have not as much, they may have political power, but they don't have that kind of influence that you can say elites have. So in Kenya, to me, I think uh, the, the fact that there was a very good uh, connections already, probably family connections and so on, that were able to help people understand the market, the people who are here to understand the market better, and they were able to incorporate the the the, the elite, and think they were able to to make sure that the the policies became favorable. Uh, for Nigeria, uh, it's tricky, uh, because Nigeria has also done a lot of. Uh, uh, local local kind of things that even giving oil blocks to, to local people where people are given oil blocks and then they sold it and made money and so on so they have made mistakes in uh, in terms of their petroleum local addition but they have done very good in terms of uh, doing a uh, local fabrication of of, of 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 all those equipment that uh, that go on and and i would say the sheer entrepreneurship of of nigeria because nigeria i guess uh, people do not see any challenge that they, they don't have, they, don't, they can't try to, 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 to tackle. So I would say in Nigeria, it's an element of kind of a greed, people really want to do well, and also the element of uh, entrepreneurship combined that they have done many things wrong. And I think they have experimented with many other things, but finally they got it right. And I think the lesson there is that you try and experiment and don't worry about failure. There is something that you'll get right in the end. So I think that's the, the key lesson from from Nigeria. But I guess these are all my, my thoughts. So let's let. Uh,
0: yeah, sure. Let I think I, I, I find it fascinating. I mean, I, I, I think you, you don't give credit where it's due. I think you oversimplify. The truth of the matter is in Morocco, OCP, the mm. company there, is just well run. I mean, no yes. amount of uh, politicking and posturing in order to fend off territorial threats is going to help you if you're not running the company well. They've got 35 plus or so percent. Of the world's phosphate market, and they are holding their own, and, and, and I think that has to be acknowledged. They have a very robust uh, local content policies, and the phosphate industry is very well integrated into Morocco's mm-hmm. economy. So, so I, I think you do have to give credit where it's due, you know, politics notwithstanding. I think you you are probably right about the European presence. And, you know, the human element, people do tend to gravitate towards their own and do tend to perhaps grant more benefit of the doubt. But look, your flowers are either arriving in the market in Holland on time, ready to go out to the stores, or you're sunk. And when they arrive, they are fresh, they, they, they can be presented and they can be bought Or you're sunk. So, I mean, there's a lot of grit that comes with doing this. And and I think understanding that, first from Mm. a strategic point of view, what it takes to be able to be part of that international supply chain is critical. And in the luxury, a commodity world of flowers, quality, timeliness, all of those things matter. A hell of a lot more than whether you are European or are not. So I I would encourage you and those who do studies in these areas to look at because I chose these examples precisely because they sit in fundamentally different sectors of the consumer space from Mm -hmm. steel, which is really in the construction, which you and I benefit from every day, but we never really see the roads we, the houses we live in, and the reinforcements. Mm -hmm. The airports, the bridges, the high-rise buildings, this is steel. And yet we never really see it. And then flowers, which bring a smile to everybody's face. Everybody can relate to a flower. Uh, And then phosphate, which again we never see. We just see the agricultural produce, but we don't know what went into. So so I was quite intrigued by, by what the lessons are that we can learn about and um, the different environments that made these industries succeed, because I think they yeah. are lessons for others. Yeah.
1: But I think, yeah Shira, I have to agree with you. Obviously, companies have to be very one and things have to work. But the question you always ask yourself, what makes things work and not work in other places? For mm. example, if in Kenya, the same country you call Kenya, coffee was, mm. Kenya coffee is valued everywhere, but you can never get enough supply. Coffee has fallen from, I think, from 400,000 tons to like 40,000 tons per year. Yet the, the demand is there. Yet this is the same country that does flowers. Is it that like the coffee are, are, are poorly run? For sure it's because coffee has a lot of uh, political interference, because these are cooperatives. And over time cooperatives, because by their very nature, even if you are a good manager of cooperative, you are, you have always have political interference. How do you protect people from, so be able to manage uh, coffee very well. And obviously we also liberalized coffee and we made it try to work, but it even became worse. Even now, farmers actually uprooted coffee in Kenya. Yeah. Uh, tea has been very well run. Actually, tea is another example in Kenya. Tea has gone very well. The, 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 the Kenya Tea Development Authority, which actually was given out of autonomy by government initially. The person who ran it did it very well. It was very successful. But today, right now, there's contention. They are putting a bill to start having government have a say in that coffee. And once they have it, it's going to be a challenge. So the question that the, the ability to run companies is there. In all countries, it is there. But what matters is what makes one industry run very well and another one not run very well? Or What gives you that space to run? Because I, to me, I, I, what I wanted to bring about is that political economy matters in giving you that space to be able to execute, because as you say in flower, I agree. You have to have quality, you have to have the skills, you have to have what. You have to give the, the, the industry obviously the, the credit, I, I probably didn't give it enough credit. They have done very well in terms of, uh, of creating a, a, a flower cluster that is uh, globally competitive and actually a kind of a global in terms of best practices, what they do. But sometimes it matters where you start, because it's where you start that decides whether you can have give, them, give them that room to, to grow. So that, what I was trying to, to, to allude to is the fact that uh, sometimes things can work very differently in the same country because of historical trajectories.
0: Yeah, uh, no, But, that but I don't true. want
1: to dismiss that because they are well and all those things are well. But sometimes things happen. And, and, and I don't know what lessons we can say this is because if you're saying that uh, it's historical and so on, then you, we can say we can raise our arms, but maybe not. But maybe we can, what we need to do is understand what, how, how do we manipulate the political economy to get this space that, can't, ca- that can't, companies need to, to be able to, to do what they need? And if you're talking of international trade and such, government becomes important because you're not going to be able to do flower trade without actually involving government. Because uh, So how do you... And that's, that's, that's a big, big challenge in all countries. You can do very well internally, but the moment you start moving to international trade and such, then you have the always the, the, the challenge that government, with all its clumsiness, can get in and mess a lot of things. So the question is that all these sectors that you have mentioned, how come they were able to survive all that? And I think that's, that would be the interesting lesson to understand. How come the government, which has shown an example of getting on the way and making sure that even if you had all the intention that you don't, they were able still to do this. Not to yeah. dismiss the aware companies. They have done that. What you have said is, is very true, and yeah. I should have put that the word go up from that. These are very well run companies. So yeah. do with you.
0: Yeah, the coffee story is interesting because, of course, the consumption of coffee, thanks to among others, Starbucks and others, that if you go to cities now in the world, uh, in the morning everybody's carrying their little mug of coffee. And nobody gives a thought to where that coffee came from, which is where the source brand comes. So uh, about 15 years ago, coffee from Costa Rica was all the rage.
1: Uh,
0: And and, 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 and Costa Rica now as a source brand for coffee and, and especially as you rightly said, from a sustainability perspective, the link between Costa Rica's environmental policies and coffee has made Costa Rican coffee preferable in terms of people who believe in the relationship between public policy and sustainability. So we're coming to the end of our interview and I wanted to just ask one last question. I mean, your firm deals in strategy and policy. If you project forward and think of value addition in the mineral oil and gas space, what do you think is potentially the single biggest threat uh, strategically, that threatens the aspirations and the wishes of governments and investors to value it in these commodities?
1: I would say the way the technology is changing and the way the, the, the industry 4.0, to me, presents interesting challenges because it changes all kinds of demands. Because if you talk of wind, if you talk of of fuel of, of cells, if you talk of what creates different kinds of demands and creates different ways value values, values and, and value is created and value is being added. So, so unless we, we start understanding very clearly the shifts towards green energy in terms of a uh, demand for, for various metals and, and, and the kind of industries that, that are coming up, and as I said, build our knowledge to be able to negotiate better and also to be able to build capability to capture values, then, then we'll be in another race of catch-up. Because I think uh, this fourth industry revolution is going to really change uh, change change the way value chains are, are structured. Mm. What, what is important, what minerals are important, and even how they go to the market. Because so I think we really we, we need to think that carefully and, and position ourselves and build the necessary skills. And as you said before, the whole idea of knowledge becomes very important because as we move to all this uh, fourth industrial, information is going to really become the more visible, the bigger, it's going to be created in terms of uh, information, in terms of things that you do with, with those metals and other things. And probably that's where we may even try to focus where, can we, where we can build greater value as opposed to the metal itself, Because Right now, a robot is, is mostly metal but I think the value, the metal part is not really worth much. The, it is the software, it's the other things, is the things that you build around it that will matter a lot. So, so yeah. I, I think that means that that is the, yeah. the, the risk.
0: No, I think hmm. you, you, you put your finger on it. I think somewhere between the fourth industrial revolution, the responsible sourcing, the uh, use of fossil fuels for energy generation, and the migration away from fossil fuels and the role of metals in offering us different alternative sources of energy. I think that intersection is for Mm -hmm. all intents and purposes, the major potential disruptor of both value chains and supply chains. And and I think any policymaker who isn't wrapping her mind or his mind around what this means to value addition Mm. has probably already lost the context. Mm -hmm. So I think that is a good note on which to wrap up because I I shall, in effect, be discussing that particular topic later on in the year. And and perhaps you can then come back and join us. Other than that, Julius, as always, it was wonderful speaking with you. And if I'm in your neck of the woods, I'll look you up. Thank you very much for joining me. Uh
1: Thank you very much Sheila for having me, it has been a pleasure. Thank you.